Hello, I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and welcome to the first Media Sport Podcast Series episode of 2017. The series is starting a little late this year because of my various research commitments, but it's great to be back talking to you again. My aim for the series this year is to keep expanding both its topical and cultural horizons, having already discussed a wide range of topics in sport, media and cultural issues in China, India, Brazil, Scandinavia and elsewhere. This episode sees our focus turn to the Asia-Pacific region and Japan, a country with a complicated history that is commonly represented as both a populist island nation, where the remnants of ancient traditions can still be seen, and a regional hub for the latest innovations in consumer technology. I note, for example, that during the closing ceremony of the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe made an appearance dressed like Nintendo's iconic video game character, Super Mario. In terms of sport, Japan is probably most associated with male-dominated sporting pursuits such as baseball, football and, of course, martial arts and sumo wrestling. But as today's guest outlines, the reality of sporting cultures and practices in Japan is about much more than popular imagery and major men's sports events. My guest is Robin Ketlinski, an Associate Professor at LaGuardia Community College in Long Island City, New York. She's the author of a fascinating book titled Japanese Women and Sport, Beyond Baseball and Sumo, and it's published by Bloomsbury Academic as part of their excellent Globalising Sports Studies series. Her research and teaching focus on Japan and the East Asian region, and her writing on these subjects can be found in journals such as Sport and Society, the Asia-Pacific Journal, and Journal of Sport History. She was awarded her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and, amongst other roles, has been a visiting research scholar at Columbia University's Weatherhead East Asian Institute. Robin, welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. I'd like to begin by asking how you came to be interested in Japan and, indeed, East Asia more generally. It actually stemmed from an interest in learning languages, um, and that stemmed from having grown up overseas. My father was a diplomat. So um, I grew up in foreign countries studying foreign languages. And it was just always a very interesting thing for me to study because you can use it. And the utility was just so apparent and I enjoyed traveling. So um, when I got to college, I just kind of took Japanese language as a challenge to myself, um, knowing that I always did well in language classes. which turned into a study abroad where I stayed with a home, you know, a a host family in Japan. Um, And, and once I was actually in the country, in the culture, that's when my, when my interest in Japanese culture um, really blossomed and there was no turning back from there. I went there to, to work and then eventually to, um, to study and and get, get the PhD in, uh, in Japanese studies. What are some of the most common misconceptions about, I suppose, either Japan or sport in Japan held by those who've either never visited or certainly never lived there? There's, I think, some popular misconceptions about, you know, Confucian-influenced societies uh, being somewhat oppressive places for women, where women have no voice or agency, um, you know, let alone where there's strong female athletes. Um and that just hasn't been my experience living in uh, in Japan, particularly. 
Um, so I think there are a lot of misconceptions about about gender. Um, I, I can speak to the U.S. media. I think often um, highlights strange and weird things about Japan. Um, sort of, you know, honestly, as as amusing as uh, Prime Minister Abe was popping out as as Nintendo Mario character, that also sort of um, <laughs> played into this idea that like Jap Japan is a very weird, crazy, strange place, which um, I, I don't really think it's any more, more so than any other place. There's strange people everywhere. <laughs> and yet um, sometimes I think the U.S. media does, does focus a lot on, uh, you know, quirky subcultures. And really, it's just it's quite a you know diverse place like anywhere else with all different kinds of people. You know, when I was an undergrad and graduate student, most of my mentors um, came into the field of Japanese studies through what I would what I would term high culture things like you know haiku poetry and tea ceremony and um, kabuki theater and these kind of you know traditional Japanese culture. Um, but now the undergraduate students that I teach, um, I've never once had a student interested in those sort of old Japanese, um, you know, uh, cultural heritage kind of things. It's, it's all about popular culture, whether it's uh, manga, anime, or sometimes sports as well. Um, it tends to be the popular culture that draws in the younger generation. Your book starts with two questions that I'd like you to speak to. Why women's sport? And why Japan? Yeah, well, um, if I could just give a little background um, as to how the book began. It was when I was in graduate school, as, as a lot of books do. Um, and it was 2004, and um, it was when the Sydney Summer Olympics was happening. And the, the Olympic Marathon, which is, you know, one of the last events and, and sort of heavily publicized, um, it was won by a Japanese woman. Um, and that was the second consecutive time that a Japanese woman won the gold medal in the Olympic Marathon. Um, and this was a sport that then, as now, was, was typically dominated by East African women. Um, and so it, it caught my attention as both somebody who specialized in Japan as well as somebody who is a distance runner and just had a personal interest in marathon as a sport. Um, so I tried to write a research paper about why were Japanese women so good at running the marathon. Um, and that's when I came up completely empty handed. Um, there was nothing about Japanese women in sports. There were, I found some scholarship, in fact, some good scholarship about um, men's sports in Japan. There was, you know, particularly about baseball, there were different historical, sociological, anthropological studies about baseball in Japan, um, as well as martial arts. Uh, a number of studies about, you know, mostly male martial arts. Uh, and then when I started trying to find scholarship about women's sports, uh, it was very, very Western dominated. So, um, you know, things like Victorian British ideals and how that influenced women, you know, not getting involved in strenuous activity or um, in the case of the United States, there's scholarship about Title IX and different, uh, you know, government measures that have been taken to try to get more women into sports. And so, um, again, there just was nothing about, uh, or very, very little, at least in English, 
um, about Japanese women in sports. And then I saw there, there were actually were some scholars in Japan writing in Japanese about this topic, a few. Um, and yet it was something that if you didn't speak Japanese, you'd have no access to that kind of information. So, um, so I set out to, you know, partially fill a gap, but also to, um, provide some commentary on this history that I felt like was just completely missing and, um, and fed into these misconceptions about Japan as a country where somehow women are really lagging far behind, either lagging far behind men or lagging far behind their Western counterparts. And your book covers a period, a very large historical sort of period of 150 more or more years. What are some of the key achievements of women in Japanese sport over this period? Um, well, there's a lot. As you said, it's a, it's a big time period. Um, uh, when you say achievements, um, you know, it starts with, I guess, uh, physical education at, at the school level. Um, uh, for those who are familiar with Japanese history, in the late 19th century, there was a very um, concentrated effort for Japan to model Western nations, uh, whether it was uh, by actually bringing in foreign advisors um, to teach English, to teach about, um, you know, government systems. They adopted like a British parliamentary style government um, or to um, sports were introduced at that time. You know, things like baseball um, came to Japan as well as cricket and other Western sports. Um, but, but one of the things that was encouraged was this uh, physical education and sort of uh, strengthening the body through different sorts of calisthenics and sports in school um, and, and mandatory education as well. So these two things got young girls involved in sports um, and it coincided, of course, with the start of the Olympics in the late 1800s. Um, and very, very early on, Japan um, saw this as an important um, venue on which to sort of literally flex their muscles and show the world that they too were, you know, uh, an advanced country on par with with other Western nations. And you also talk about the 2011 Women's Soccer World Cup. What's, what's the significance of that victory in your mind? Um, well, it, it came right as my book was about to be published, <laughs> so it was quite timely. Um, but you know, to me, it was no surprise. <laughs> and I found it fascinating that, uh, well, of course, I'm a U.S. citizen. So um, Americans were very upset that they lost to Japan. And, and they were shocked um, that such a thing could happen. And so, you know, I had just written this book about the long, rich history of Japanese women's involvement in sport. But because most Westerners are completely unfamiliar with that history. It seemed like um, just out of the blue that these women had um, had done so well. But and, and they've consistently been well. They haven't, you know, obviously won the past one. But um, but it also was interesting because because they won the World Cup, then they got a lot of media attention. Um, and one of the things that that uh, came to light was, for example, that. Um, 
the the female team who performed a lot better than the the men's team in general uh, was flying economy class on on airplanes while the men were flying you know business class and it, it actually got a lot of attention in the Japanese press um, that that's not okay <laughs> and um, and so you know it was timely it was a timely event that um, brought to light not only the strength and, and skill of these women, but also the inequities that still existed um, in Japan as, as elsewhere. Yeah, and it, it does speak to a, a history of women's sport in a number of countries. But what's interesting in the way you go about your analysis from my perspective is that you, you contrast the sort of images of Japanese women as submissive and powerless, and that's something that runs through a lot of popular culture texts and then contrast that against the prominence and success of very active and capable and powerful Japanese women. Um, how does that change over time? Yeah, I would say in terms of sheer numbers, of course, the numbers have gotten bigger. Um, like I said, I think a lot of people would be surprised how far back um, Japanese women were were involved with, uh, with elite international sports. Um, a, a big chunk of my book focuses on this one woman, Hitomi Kinue, who was, you know, she towed the line of the very first women's track and field events ever held in the Olympic Games. Um, and even prior to that, in 1928, um, she had also competed in other international events in Europe and elsewhere. So, um, you know, this this really powerful, sort of like dark, tan, muscular Japanese woman really doesn't fit most people's image of um, 1920s Japan. Even even having studied Japanese history for quite some time, the image I had of, of Japanese women in the 1920s was the kind of modern girl, flapper style. <laughs> um, and so I was just so fascinated when I came across these um, photographs and stories and autobiographies of these athletes. Um, and it's, it's not to say that they didn't face discrimination or that people you know, we're always so um, accepting of how they were, but that sports gets tied up in nationalism at a time when nationalism was really important to Japanese people <laughs> with their expanding empire in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Um, you know, that's a whole other layer, interesting historical layer as to, you know, why they, how and why they gained acceptance and approval um, because the Japanese flag was being raised, and um, you know, similarly, there were there were Korean citizens who were running under the with the Japanese flag as part of the Japanese Empire. And although they faced discrimination in their lives, just like women did, um, when it came to sports, there were these kind of moments of solidarity, for better or worse. You know, there's sociologists have written about this phenomenon of. Like, what does it mean when a country supports people for this one brief moment? And yet I think, um, taken as a collective, you know, it, it does change um, perceptions of, of groups of people, such as women. Um, and then, you know, I guess also speaking over time, so the number has increased, um, the number of different events and, and sports that they take part in has increased, um, but also the whole issue of commercialization and, um you know, there's there's women who are selling products, female athletes sell products in Japan. And that's, I think that that takes on a whole other sort of meaning as well. 
Earlier in our discussion, you mentioned sort of research or writing and uh, that have been written in Japanese as opposed to English. What are some of the, the challenges of you know, linguistic and cultural translation in your research? Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Japanese is a really challenging language. Um, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've been studying the language for about 20 years <laughs> and uh, I'm still not completely fluent and I certainly don't catch all the nuances of the language. Um, so that is certainly a challenge, but you know, um, I don't think it's a reason. I, I don't think it means I can't understand what's going on or um, make an attempt to interpret what I see and read. Um, I think, as with any sort of uh, socio-historical cultural study, um, immersion is always is always helpful on a number of levels. Um, obviously, it helps you improve your language skills, but it also just uh, gets you attuned to kind of um, how people are. <laughs> and every time I've lived in Japan, uh, just purely for my own personal interest, I've been involved in some sort of running community or club, um, which helps me see, you know, a sporting culture from the inside. Not that I'm a, um, sort of ethnographer anthropologist, but, um, I do feel like it, it gives me some insight into, um, into the culture. So, uh, so I think it's I think it can be um, challenge in terms of the the linguistic barrier, but um, you know I I consider myself fairly attuned to the culture. Um, I do understand what's going on, and and I never claim to you know completely understand everything. <laughs> so uh, you know I can only do my best as as can anyone. And what, what have been the responses to your research in the book and indeed what you've written since from Japanese scholars? Well, I've found um, they're quite happy, obviously, to have um, people outside of Japan interested. Um, but I think the, it's been very positively received um, amongst people that I know. Um, I'm still asked every year to go back to the university where I did most of my research, Tsukuba, which is right outside of Tokyo. Um, I'm sort of their resident uh, English-speaking scholar who, <laughs> who talks about gender and sports, um, and I'm, I'm very honored that they continue to ask me to come back. Um, I, I found in general in my experience coming from the U.S., is that there's actually a larger community of sports scholars in Japan than there are um, in the U.S. in terms of um, sort of institutional support and institution, the way the institutions are set up. Um, for example, uh, the, the, the department that I'm affiliated with in, at SCUBA is a department of health and sports sciences, which has social scientists, um, historians, sociologists, anthropologists, um, as well as people who do sports law, sports medicine, sports business. They're all housed in one department. Um, and then they also have all sorts of symposia, programs, um, conferences, research groups. And, um, you know, maybe I just have never been able to kind of tap into that in the U.S., but I, I think it's structured differently in Japan. And it's, it's um, quite a vibrant scholarly community. If you could recommend a book that you think listeners should read, 
on Japan or the East Asian region? What what would it be? So um, there's a number of uh, of great edited volumes on on sport in the in both the Japanese context as well as as uh, East Asian context. Um, the person who actually um, made me think that my project had promise was an anthropologist uh, at Yale University named uh, William Kelly. And he has an excellent edited volume called uh, This Sporting Life, Sports and Body Culture in Modern Japan. Um, his particular interest has been on baseball fan culture in Japan. Um, but he's also written a fair bit about the Olympics. Um, he's also the editor of a more recent book called The Olympics in East Asia, Nationalism, Regionalism, and Globalism on the Center Stage of World Sports. Um, so I think those edited volumes provide a lot of sort of um, bite-sized, different angles about sports in Japan. Uh, there are not a ton of monographs. Um, there, there is a book called Japanese Sports, A History by Alan Gutman and Lee Thompson. Um, Alan Gutman teaches in the U.S. and Lee Thompson uh, teaches at, at a school in Japan. Um, it's quite a um, comprehensive book about the history of sports in Japan, um, focusing on the modern era. Uh, it's a bit dated now, but, but it is an easy read and it's, it helped inform my project as well. And you mentioned the Olympics there in passing. Now, of course, Tokyo is scheduled to host the 2020 uh, Games. What, how are they, what are your thoughts on those and how are they significant in terms of the trajectory of, of sport in Japan um, and its relationship to the Olympic movement? Well, I think I could provide you a very long answer to that question <laughs> um, because, as you know, I'm a historian and so I tend to look back and not forward. Um, and yet I would be remiss not to capitalize on this moment where people are, you know, looking at sports in Japan. Um, so um, the, the sort of medium length answer is that, and I also mentioned this before, Japan has been heavily involved in the Olympics, I would argue more so than, than most countries. Um, they're about to host their fourth Olympic Games, which is is quite remarkable for any country. Um, and uh, they've essentially been, when you, look at, when you look at all the times that they've bid for the Olympics, um, which by the way is a, is a pretty expensive and involved process, just bidding for it. Um, but essentially since the 1930s, with a brief break for World War II, um, they they really have been constantly bidding. They they did win the they won the bid, the bid in 1940 to host the Olympic Games. Um, it was subsequently canceled because of World War II. Um, but they had started making plans. They had posters. They had planned out where the events were going to take place. Um, and then, of course, they did not want to use the money in in that um, for for that event. So so then. Um, to host the 1964 Olympics, they began the bidding process um, basically while while the country was still in ruins after World War II. Um, in fact, they bid for the 1960 Olympics, which was given 
to another Axis power that was rebuilding when, when Rome won it. Um, so, so they've, there's, there's some fairly um, clear connections between kind of international, um, what's the word? I, I don't know, international relations or the way that they see themselves in the world and their um, investment in this, in this event. Um, and 1964 was a very pivotal moment in modern Japanese history. Um, and it, it's almost cliche in modern Japanese history textbooks, for example, or narratives, um, that this was such a transformative event that, you know, the city completely reinvented itself, rose like a phoenix from the ashes, um, the bullet train opened just before the 1964 Olympics opening ceremonies took place in October 1964. Um, there's all these different things that um, that make it look like sort of Japan's economic miracle was was maybe um, launched by the the Olympic Games. And um, one thing I've I've worked on, which I think is kind of an interesting thought thought experiment, is this notion of memory. And, um, you know, particularly Japanese bureaucrats today, many of them have very um, positive memories and associations with this 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. And those are the very people who were pushing so hard for the 2020 Olympics. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure that the, the public today and, and young people and people who are shouldering the um, the burden of the taxes and also the headache of the construction. Um, I'm not sure they're so convinced it's the best thing for Japan right now, um, particularly in the in the wake of the um, the 2011 earthquake and tsunami and nuclear plant um, triple disaster. Uh, not everybody thinks that the funds should be used towards big Olympic infrastructure projects. So you know, I think there's there's dissent. There, it's kind of complicated, um, but it speaks to a very long history of of uh, the Japanese government using the Olympics as a platform to kind of show themselves to the world in hopefully a positive light. I'm thinking about the '64 Games, and Japan also played a uh, quite a, an important role in the development of the Paralympic movement around that time as well. Does your work engage with the Paralympics in Japan and, and disability sports? That's a good question. I, I actually have a, a friend who I've been on a number of panels with uh, named Dennis Frost who uh, knows much more about this topic than I do. And I'll admit it was not um, a big part of my research. Um, so, so I can't say too much about it, but you're correct in noting that it did play an important role. And, and looking forward to 2020, um, Japan has really made some, um, some big, big investments in what they call barrier-free living, which is basically, you know, um, ability for people who are disabled to get around Tokyo, which, um, you know, also it happens to be one of the uh, most graying societies where there's a lot of elderly people. They, they have a very long lifespan. Um, and, and you know, the way the demographics are going, there's, you know, a lot of elderly people in Japan. So 
it's uh, it's timely that there should be more, you know, wheelchair ramps and elevators. Um, but they are making some pretty major infrastructure changes, uh, ostensibly for the 2020 Olympics right now. Thank you for taking time out of your evening to speak with me. It's been a pleasure to host you for the Media Sport podcast series. Thanks so much for asking me to be on the show, Brett. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>